0: So regrets, I have no regrets leaving, nor do I have regrets leaving in the manner that I did. But I miss the people I worked with. I miss the decision-making process. I miss a lot of things. Like I said, I really loved that job. That chapter is over, you know, at least temporarily. I'm not certain I would go back to government service. I'd have to think about it. But, you know, we're in serious trouble as a planet it's all hands on deck even if i don't work in a governmental position or in the intelligence community there are other ways to move the ball forward whether by collective personal actions or by helping future leaders think about these problems
1: welcome to the award-winning leadership in the environment podcast we guide you to living better by your values We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. You might remember last June and July reading about Rod Schoonover, my next guest, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and places like that. He resigned in protest as a long-time, almost a decade, government intelligence and security researcher and analyst. He focused on a field that he helped create, which was climate security. That meant he focused on learning how environmental changes could affect the security of the United States. If you're an American, that means your life, your way of living, your security, as well as mine. The White House blocked his testimony to Congress. Not disagreed, but blocked. Even places like the Conservative American Enterprise Institute went on record saying how things like that just don't happen in the United States. He loved his job. He loved his work. He loved the people he worked with. This episode will share what happened from his inside view. That's one part. The other part is his personal choice to act. We all face choices between what we think is right versus what's easier. And we're inclined to think that if we just keep our heads down, well, if we do what's easier, then we'll still be able to act later on or that our consciences won't catch up to us. Rarely do we risk our careers, livelihood. He was a first-time father, a new father with a one-year-old baby. And rarely do we see our choices made so public. He had to act on that. I believe that we can learn from his experience because we all face choices like that ourselves. Here's Rod. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment Podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Rod Schoonover. Rod, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And there's two main things I like to cover with you. So, you almost exactly a year ago, after almost a decade in public service in the government, which followed a long time of basic research and, as a scientist. You left your position after a a report that you were gonna give was, I would say, censored. It looked like it was held back from the government. And you resigned. So one piece is to get more of that history. I didn't do it justice there, I'm sure. That's great. And the other is the leadership side of it, of you had a difficult decision. I can't imagine what it was like. And you several decisions to go into that into environment and security in the first place mm-hmm. from basic research. And also, what's happened since? So, I think sure. a lot of listeners would like to do th- more, and they they have a decision like yours, probably on a smaller scale. So, I'm sure you've told the story many, many times. <laughs> uh, do you mind sharing it again? No, no, I'm I'm
0: happy to. So, just you know, my career track has been pretty unusual for a scientist. You know, I got my PhD in in physics and chemical physics. And most scientists, once they get the academic position, that's what they, they stop. And that's their career. And I was a college professor for, you know, more than a dozen years uh, in, in California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. But, you know, I was becoming increasingly concerned uh, about climate change while, you know, U.S. government leaders were either ignoring or rejecting the scientific consensus around climate change and so around 2009 I applied for and received a uh, science fellowship to join the government. I was placed in the US State Department who I had already had some relationship with. Um, it was for a one year tour. It was basically to learn about science policy and take it back to my students and you know get them excited about science and uh, you know alternative directions for careers. This is not something that I would have expected where I would end up, but I landed into the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. That's part of the U.S. intelligence community, and so for about a decade, I analyzed and articulated the national security dimensions of of environmental change, science and technology developments, and health security. So, and I had a you know a few other roles in the intelligence community now. In terms of the, uh, you know, my time in government, so I spent seven and a half years in the Obama administration, and two and a half years in the Trump administration, and you know, their relationship with science and scientific integrity, not surprisingly, probably to your podcast audience, uh, couldn't be more different. And you know, I had some success working with various officials under Trump, But from the beginning, there were some fights over science, over climate science, over um, you know White House efforts to politicize, suppress, you know, very mainstream climate science. And so in spring 2019, which was, as you said, just about a, a year ago, more, a little more than a year ago, I was uh, asked by the House of Representatives Intelligence Committee, that's chaired by Adam Schiff, to appear before Congress to testify in an unclassified setting on the national security implications of climate change. And this is after, you know, the Democrats had taken over the House. And so a number of the House committees had been having hearings on climate change. And it was natural that the the House Intel Committee would ask about the national security implications. And you know, when you turn to the intelligence community, my name pretty much came up uh, right away. And so in the U.S. system, when we appear before Congress, especially as a sitting member of, of the government, the relevant agency, in this case an intelligence agency, would prepare an unclassified document, a statement for the record, and clear it internally and
1: send it on to Congress. And Sorry to interrupt for a second. Not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, you're saying security and intelligence, but this is not cloak and dagger stuff. This is like a, a, a
0: business right. as usual report to... Business as usual report with the context that there were some fairly active climate science suppression efforts going on already in various domestic entities not so much in the intelligence community, not so much in the State Department, but certainly things were happening at the Department of Interior and Department and the EPA. But for better or worse, the intelligence community usually gets a hands-off approach from any administration, just because it's the public and certainly the people inside the Beltway don't like it when administrations start monkeying around with intelligence. So yeah it was unclassified it was drawn from science so basically this the statement for the record you know I wrote the testimony but it was really the statement of my bureau because it was cleared internally and you know since this was being entered into the congressional record and you know by extension available to the american people not just the present but in the future i thought this would be a good opportunity and actually necessary Uh, to show that the security community, the intelligence community, not only understood climate change, but could could make credible assessments of its seriousness. And, you know, I say this sometimes when I speak in public now, that I think the national security community owes it to the public to show its work when it can. And so I don't like, especially since I'm a scientist, to just pull judgments out of thin air Without supporting evidence, I think we should show our work as much as possible. And so, you know, just, uh, just to take this little story down <laughs> uh, to its conclusion, you know, when you talk about the implications of climate change, you have to necessarily talk about climate science. That's where these assessments are drawn from. The trajectory of temperature increases, the trajectory of precipitation and its impacts on things like political instability and and civil unrest and and those kind of disruptive migration and humanitarian issues. So the, uh, the White House did not like that there was climate science in this document. It eventually intervened, suppressed our testimony. This is the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the State Department. And on the grounds that it included... Six pages of an 11 page document that did not, quote, comport with the administration's stance on climate change or climate science, unquote. And so that prevented our statement from being transmitted to Congress. And, you know, at the same time, this, you know, I was very worried that some of this would get out because, not worried as much as I had a sense that this would get out at some point because. Washington D.C. is very leaky uh, in terms of you know these kinds of things, especially nowadays. I did not expect it to be news the next day after uh, the testimony. So this testimony, it's on C-SPAN. You can see it. It's kind of boring. You know, I was petrified going in there because not only was it increasingly controversial within the Trump administration to talk about climate science, uh, I was also quite worried. That someone on the, you know, on the House committee was going to ask me a question about whether the administration had tampered with the uh, testimony. See, we didn't send it and they didn't ask why it wasn't sent. And then and then it just, you know, living in D.C., I never know how much these stories leak to the normal world uh, but inside of D.C., you know, I was the subject of three or four news new cycles.
1: This is the paper that was, I mean, there's a New York Times published paper with all the little bubbles on the right mm-hmm. that say NSC comment. So the document is now on the public record. I mean, that's right. Including the edits. The document
0: at some point was leaked, including the edits. It was pretty stunning to see those. That was the one layer of a response that I had gotten. When I was at the State Department uh, with all of these, you know, really unusual, in some cases, highly personal you know, notes and comments in an official document. And not really scientific. I mean, some stuff was scientific, but. I would say if you're going to be charitable, you would call it an extreme minority viewpoint of science, you know, certainly not rooted in, in consensus climate science. And so, but just back into why I think this was so serious, it, you know, there is this, it was a pretty ugly fight, you know, between the White House and my bureau. The fight was between people, like not you, you were like in the middle of it. I was in the middle of it at, by that point. I was copied sometimes and co- not copied other times on these, uh, oh, man. on these interchanges. But basically, you know, this was not just suppression of science. It was suppression of the intelligence community. Which you know is frowned upon you know it uh, inside of certainly inside of d c circles it can lead to all kinds of terrible outcomes for for government, uh, especially when you start to politicize it and so the record was never officially released or transmitted to to Congress. it is available on <laughs> New York Times, and I actually think those comments you know I was just frankly you know especially a year ago you know i was horrified that that leaked you know i i was just almost traumatized by that because as a good member of the intelligence community we take seriously confidentiality and you know the the importance that you know of of people in the system being able to uh share their thoughts and so I, to have that leak and then to have me and my photo being on a number of stories, you know, it was uh, was really weird.
1: Not the voice you were looking for.
0: Not the voice I was looking for. You know, it's there's a reason why people don't know a lot of people's names, you know, why the American public doesn't know a lot of people's names in the intelligence community, because it's depersonalized on purpose. Uh, It tries to
1: speak with one voice. Well, what was your goal in going into intelligence in the first place? Because on the face of it, Basic science seems about publishing and intelligence seems, there does seem to be some cloak and dagger to it. Yeah. And, but that doesn't sound like how, you, when you talk about, it seems like you talk about the people that you worked with very highly. Yeah. And a community. I mean, going into national security or intelligence, what was the motivation there? And what's a part of the intelligence view, national security view? There is a blog post from about a month ago on your new site. Mm-hmm. Is that like a good, solid covering of what, intelligence is about as regard to climate? Yeah, to to a large degree. So
0: just, you know, there are a number of questions in there that were good ones. You know, I wasn't necessarily drawn to the cloak and dagger stuff, you know, and I had this uh, crazy high security clearance and I read on a daily basis, highly classified material with the ambition. And, you know, I kind of created this new niche or at least help create it inside of government where, you know, I'm a PhD scientist and part of being current as a scientist is reading primary source articles. And I, I do this, I do this professionally. I do this because personally, cause I like it. I really like to stay up on things, but I would also have access to this classified database that was really more geo-strategic In nature and security focused. And so over time, instead of layering the science on top of security or security on top of science, the ambition was to integrate that deep into my brain. So I could see the national security implications of climate change in something or whatever thing I was looking at, you know, water security, food security, or ecological degradation. I could see those effects even when they were not necessarily spelled out in the intelligence documents that i was reading and so my draw was mostly you know to work on climate change issues and and earth system stresses and help move the national security apparatus in washington dc to grapple with some of the 21st century risks that I think they have been late to the party on.
1: I've come to view... I I think government is going to be the last thing that's brought in kicking and screaming to this. I applaud your diving into it. Well, someone has to, right? (laughs) And and government
0: has a giant role to play. But you're right. I mean, a lot of change comes from the outside. I was amazed by how much articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times or Vox or wherever, Fox News, would affect the ongoing policy, in my case, you know, I was a witness to foreign policy, you know, how much that shaped the conversation. And, you know, a lot of questions I would get, well, you know, these migrants coming up from the Northern Triangle from Central America, how much is this related to climate change? I'm like, well, I'll write something for you and we can talk about it. There are a lot of overlaps between those discussions, you know, climate change and, and environmental change and security that, you know, certainly a lot of policymakers aren't aware of ahead of time. And, you know, one of my jobs was to illuminate and illustrate that for them. And uh, I liked it. And I I was, I don't know why I want to say surprisingly good at it, because, you know, as I said before, you know, when you become a, uh, a scientist and go through your PhDs, you're most of the people you interact with are academics and it's almost like this whole entire system is to drive people to become future academics and you know there are times when i was thinking well this is you know i was good at it i was a good professor you know you get to thinking well maybe this is the only thing i can do and so when i had success at the state department and in the broader intelligence community it's like oh i'm good at this too and I, it was very It's very rewarding to help policymakers think through these really complicated and complex situations that don't have easy answers. Call me biased, but I think physicists are good
1: at a lot of things (laughs) outside of physics.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that's also why, you know, sometimes other scientists uh, get annoyed with us as well.
1: (laughs) Now You mentioned complexity, and there's a view that, you know, I presume you've read Limits to Growth. Yes, a long time ago, but yes. Very influential for me. And the system's perspective of complexity, but that if you don't look at the whole system, like you can project population and say, how are we going to feed 10 billion people? And you can get an answer if you just look at population and don't imagine how that affects the economy and all these other things. Right. Now you were in a position where you were bringing a lot of things together. Right. That must've been on the one hand, fantastic. On the other hand, I would guess that you saw problems others wouldn't dream of, and yet they're probably pretty critical. must've been Right. you're facing things and how to communicate that. Like I was just talking to someone uh, an interview before this and the guy was like, look, all we got to do is get nuclear power and the problem solved. And I was like, I don't think it's so easy, but can you tell me about what it was like being in the, am I right that you were not just looking at one aspect? You were looking probably at a very broadly systemic view and it was probably must've been very difficult to communicate that to others. But you know,
0: yeah, you're hitting a very critical topic and, you know, I, I would like to say, you know, this is a, um, shortcoming of the government but i think it's a shortcoming of larger institutions as well but you know my background is in complex systems physics and systems thinking is part and parcel of that you cannot understand the nature of the problem just by breaking pieces down and hoping to glue it back together and understand the the problem you have to look at it systematically through systems it is very difficult to articulate that to people who don't who think in a really reductionist way. Because you know, when I was uh, in government, I would talk to policymakers who want to pass policies to address these problems, and you know, uh, systems thinking and policy has a long ways to go. Right? It's it is piecemeal by and large but yeah i mean just i think one of the things that really spurred some of the activities i did after leaving government you know i was thankful that a lot of attention was paid to climate change but i did worry about you know there are these other issues going on not everything in environmental uh, security is climate change you know we have a, a enormous challenge with With respect to water uh, stress and water security and food security ecological degradation uh, pollution and in plastics invasive species uh, and you know I worry about in physics this is called optimizing a multivariable problem over one variable right and we do this over and over again as human beings right let's grow as much food as we possibly can pour as much nitrogen and you know other fertilizers into the soil maximize yield and then uh, maybe and don't look at its effect on soil let's let's catch as many fish out of the ocean as as possible without caring about the long-term sustainability one might argue let's the notion of build, of planting a trillion trees without looking out Looking at what its implications on water security, we repeat these you know these issues, we repeat these mistakes over and over again. And so I, I have a little bit of worry that we won't have a holistic, systematic, systems-based policy response to what I think is a pretty rapidly accelerating, multi-dimensional basket of stresses in our in our future
1: in which we're closer and closer to the cliff all the time
0: right you know it's it's either a cliff or a series of cliffs right and so yeah you know and the pandemic that we're that we're you know living through is just one dimension of this relationship of people to in society to nature and you know will we learn from this will we take advantage of the opportunity presented by this pandemic. I mean, I, I think that that sentence was overly ghoulish, uh, by the <laughs> way. Uh, but, you know, just in terms of, you know, recovery, are we going to rebuild what wasn't working beforehand? Or are we going to recover forward? You know, it's. Uh, I think it's hard to do that without systems thinking.
1: And it's so hard to get people to get it. Although it's so beautiful when we do get it.
0: I know. How much do we devote to this in our educational systems? We shouldn't be surprised that people don't understand it because are unfamiliar with it uh, because we live in a reductionist world.
1: I guess to me, my earliest roots to it is like taking classes in dynamical systems with rabbits and foxes and, you know, fish and ponds. pond. That's right. That's right. That's mine too. And I was like, it's so beautiful. The math, right. to me, of wow, we can explain this stuff and it describes this and it's like so different, wildly different things and yet it works. Right. And then the only hard part about that was, do I want to go to math or physics? Because it was so beautiful and so connected with me.
0: But you know what? I mean, let me just append what I was, what I was saying before because I actually think it was probably overly pessimistic. And here's why. Uh, if you reframe it and say... And your perfect example of of hairs and lynxes and the way that they're connected in ways that they don't even understand uh, gets at that. And it's this deep connectedness of people and natural systems that I think, I think we're making headway into that. You know, in the 20th century, we had a long period where basically the predominant viewpoint, if it wasn't articulated, it was still acted on is that the earth was limitless and we could throw anything we wanted uh, into uh, the ocean and spew any amount of you know gases into the atmosphere. And basically the earth was big enough that it wouldn't matter. And that was a prevailing viewpoint for a long time. And now I think people get the deep connectedness at least some view of that and how things, how the natural
1: world can boomerang and affect people. You're making me think of, uh, I was recently coming across the concept of extinction is actually very new right. in terms of human history. That's right. I mean, there was a, a great chain of being and you couldn't have a missing link. There, there had to be right. there. It couldn't go away. Right. So I was reading about how hunters, these Europeans would go to Africa and they'd like walk up to this rhinoceros and just shoot it in the head because... And we now we think that doesn't sound very sporting at all. And what a terrible loss of life for no reason. But at the time, if you just think, they just kind of reappear all the time anyway. Right. And they're gonna, it's going to die. I mean, if you shoot it right in the head, it's possibly minimizing suffering. And we think of rhinoceroses as, as possibly going extinct. Uh, how many species of rhinoceros are already extinct? Yeah. But at the time, if you just think, the world is just going to keep going as it has, no problem. That's right. Then... Yeah, go ahead.
0: Shoot it in the head. Yeah. And, you know, this prevailing bias that uh, the way the world is that we've experienced will effortlessly project into the future. Certainly in the age of acceleration, we're going to see in, you know, in our lifetime that, you know, that worldview being tested. I mean, test it, you know, you know. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I spent a decade in government, so I know how to sometimes couch my language and not scare people so much. But, you know, you mentioned extinctions. It's one of, I remember as a kid just looking up into telescopes and being just simultaneously amazed and horribly frightened by the vastness of space and the insignificance of human beings. My latest version of that is reading, you know, the deep history of extinctions on Earth. That's my current version of that. It's fascinating and it's terrifying, right? Because it makes real by our own history on this planet. When I say our, I mean carbon-based life forms in that case. Not only can extinction happen, it happens frequently. And sometimes it's so big, it gets called a mass extinction. And so, uh, you know, this idea that the permanence of humans on, on the planet, you know, you want to get jarred out of that sensibility. You know, dig into that
1: extinction science. It's, uh, it's quite sobering. Have you read Once in Future World? I have not. It's not about extinctions, but it's about how the world was before. The guy's exploring nature before humans. Right came on came in the picture. And it's not so static. So he he quickly realizes it wasn't like the world was just like this for a long, long time. But what are some things that there are accounts of captains logs of ships before steam right. sailing across the ocean. And they were stopped in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean by schools of fish so great that the boat just couldn't move through the water. Right. And there were nowadays, if you go to Maine, maybe if you're lucky you might see a whale. But right. these whaling boats would see whales as far as the eye could see all day long. Right, right. And that the wildlife of Africa is nothing compared to the wildlife of North America where there are these giant beavers the size of cars. And that was like regular, like lots of that. Right. And when I, now it's like, I used to walk in Central Park and think, oh, what a beautiful you know, bit of nature that we preserved here. But it's not preserved, it's reconstructed. But now I walk around, if I get lucky and walk on outside the city, I'm like, I, it's beyond my imagination how much more nature, how much more wildlife there was before, and what we this creeping normalcy of like what I grew up in is nothing compared to what was there before.
0: Yeah, the creeping normalcy. Yeah, it's a it's a good term. The, I have not read that book, but I know those anecdotes. Um, that you know, the more recent version of that, that parents or grandparents often talk about. Is, you know, when they would be driving down the interstate and there would be one bug after another hitting the windshield, just yeah. uh, especially... We don't clean windshields anymore. Right. Especially when, you know, I grew up uh, in the Midwest in Kansas. Uh, this was a common thing. And you just don't see that as much as you used to.
1: I think the non-systems view is like, okay, well, we're missing some bees. All right, we'll grow some more bees. All right, we're missing some... <clears throat> there's a few right. more weeds. Grow, the ratio of weeds to plants is changing. Well, we'll just fix that. And they don't realize, okay, let's say we fix those. Well, that takes some resources from the industry. So right. that means industry is going to grow a little slower. Well, that's going to mean that we have less resources to devote to other things. And all these little things, I think a lot of people think, well, fix all of them, but you get this collapse very quickly.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely hard. Fortunately, we've invented system science, right? We've, we know at least a splinter of. What can be done at least trying to understand the problem you know i I think we probably understand the climate system well enough to address it. I'm less confident about the ecological systems biodiversity you mean, and yeah, biodiversity loss and ecological shifts that one you know again, taking a physics view. You know, the, the world of atmospheric science and, and, you know, thermodynamics is full of partial differential equations that can be solved. And our math lends itself to studying those systems and putting them into computers. And we're late to the game on understanding the natural world and the, and the ecological systems. I mean, there have been really important work on that front, but we are so behind the game in understanding what's happening in the natural world not just to climate change but to all those other stresses that i mentioned before sometimes in in the government i would be pushing for ecological forecasting you know along the lines of weather forecasting to really understand things like you know harmful algae and uh, invasive species and can we sargassum and sargassum is a big yeah can we get a handle of these things can we at least buy you know a year or two or a month or two of time. One of my big things in critiquing government is that, especially the United States government, it is entirely, almost entirely, in a reactive mode. It's just playing whack-a-mole constantly. Which problem comes up? Let's address it. Which problem comes up? And the lack of ability to do even midterm, much less long-term, Strategic analysis and anticipation and foresight in terms of where do we want the country to go and where do we want society to go, is almost completely wiped out. It, that wasn't always the case. You know, presidents like Eisenhower and Truman and Kennedy and Ivan Johnson, you know, they had some pretty robust uh, strategic functions inside of the of the government, but. You know, I think certainly in the last twenty years we've kind of—it's almost zero. It's not quite zero, but uh, it's—it's way, way down uh, in terms of
1: solving our problems. Well, on a personal level, why? That's why, despite my science background and this being something regarding nature, to me, it's our behavior that's the big issue. I I mean, I'm a huge fan of more research and and learning more about the situation, but it seems plenty overwhelming for me. And the issue is how do we change our behavior? And not just see that there's a problem, but what we do about it. Hence leadership in the environment. Right. Actually let me transition at this point sure. to you had a decision to make. Well you didn't have to make a decision. You I, I want to go to the, the emotional journey that you had. Okay. Because you acted do on it. something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So when last we heard you were caught up in the situation, you're surprised, you're mortified that this is leaked to the press. As I saw it, it was June 5th of last year. Right. When this happened. And it was in July that you resigned, right. That I, at least I saw the news. Yeah. So there's a month in there of yeah. thinking about your future, thinking yeah. about are you going to be more effective doing, sticking with the old way? Or are you going to right. be more effective doing it with the new way? Are you going to be able to pay your bills? Are you going to lose your house? I, I'm not sure. You're, you got a family. right? And I'm asking this partly because probably everyone listening to this themselves is like, well, should I, you know, it's easier to turn the air conditioner on or it's, you know it's easier to drive than to take public transit, or I mean everything's different now because of the the pandemic, but people are thinking on a smaller scale than you, but I bet there's something similar, and some we can learn from your experience
0: yeah, it was a uh, very difficult decision, so just just talking a little bit about the mechanics, so the document leaked that was less stressful to me than the actual suppression. I thought that was just beyond the pale, and that is not something that democratic institutions do. You know, there's a long history of policymakers ignoring intelligence that it doesn't like or, you know, any facts that it doesn't like, but to go out of its way to suppress it. And I felt it was a double whammy of suppressing intelligence and suppressing science. But, you know, in the next coming weeks, uh, you know, when this came out in the the press, you know, certainly Chairman Adam Schiff wasn't going to just sit around And watch this transpire. They, uh, that committee, sent sent a letter to the State Department demanding that our bureau's testimony get released, and they wanted me to go and testify about what happened. And of course, I was not permitted to do that. That's something that I think most American citizens don't understand. When when you're a sitting government official, especially in the intelligence community, you're not permitted to speak on your own behalf you have to go through formal channels and so i was working behind the scenes trying to argue for us to release this statement you know give the give the administration an opportunity this had been in the press a couple times give them an opportunity just to let it go on and they could avoid this unnecessary mess um, but inside of the state department we didn't even have the the support from uh, you know the Bureau of Legislative Affairs. I uh, witnessed a, a second round of suppression from within the State Department. And so it just, the system is not set up correctly if the intelligence community cannot respond unfettered to its own oversight committee, that there's some other policy fingerprint uh, that can be pushed on and, and pressed on the intelligence community to get them to say what the administration wants them to say. I think that's
1: very dangerous. Sorry, I have to interject here yeah. because when you talk about the the White House Office of Legislative Affairs, this is State Department
0: Bureau of Legislative Affairs. There is a office or Bureau of Legislative Affairs in most agencies and that they oversee how you, how the executive branch interacts with Congress.
1: I can't help but look at what was going on and, this is probably beyond what you would be comfortable saying, but it's hard not to think about when I was growing up and it's like Cold War spy flicks. This is what the other side was doing. This is what, this is way too far, but I don't, I don't know too much the names of the other ones, but it's like, it feels like Stasi type stuff. Yeah. Obviously not Stasi. I don't want to like, they did all sorts of other things, but it's like, you know, making sure that that the science fits the, the politics and the po- oh. Yeah. And then if you leave, you can't, you're going to lose your ability to, Right, resist that. I would think that's right, and so
0: you know, I was particularly chilled by hearing that that our testimony did not comport with the administration's stance on climate science. You know, to a scientist, that that's a really awkward turn of phrase uh, because there's typically not an administration's stance on atomic theory or on gravity, uh, on gravity. Right. And so, you know, there were inklings of that, but just to have it spelled out like that was pretty startling. And yeah, you know, these suppression efforts and reality bending efforts, because it's not just suppression of science, it's a suppression of statements that do not comport with a you know group of individuals in the administration and the willingness to suppress it I think should be alarming to everyone.
1: If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshospodak.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshospodak.com slash donate. So now that's the situation. What's going on in your head and in your heart and in your family? You know, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah. Well, so,
0: you know, just as I thought I would die an academic. When I joined the government in stage two of of my career, I thought I would remain in government for the rest of my, you know, of my working life. I loved it. I didn't expect to love it to the degree that I did, but I loved it. I loved pushing for these issues that enhance the common good within government. And I was very privileged as a member of the State Department and the member of the intelligence community to have that position. There are very few PhD scientists. I knew that uh, in, certainly in the Bureau of Intelligence, I knew that when I left, they would not replace me. I was a leading voice on environmental security within government. I knew that they would not easily replace me if they did. And, you know, just personally, I had a one month, uh, pardon me, one-year-old daughter at home. And A lot of people, a lot of my friends were like, you can't quit. You got to set something up first. And I, you know, I was like, I understand what you're saying, but morally I have to resign. What is a resignation and protest if you have something set up to jump into, right? If you've got your out, you know, your uh, escape plan already set up. And so I jumped into nothingness and it was the right thing to do. and. I would do it again, but it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make because I also knew it would garner more press. And, you know, I like to speak in public, but I do not like to be uh, a public figure. You know, uh, even podcasts are sometimes uncomfortable for me. Uh, But I think it's important that, you know, the American public sees what's going on And so I'm a firm believer that if you resign, uh, you resign noisily. And so I didn't want to just walk away from this job that that I loved. I wanted to walk away, gain my voice back, and alert at least some percentage of the American public what was going on. You know, and I'm glad I did. And... I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. I had an interview with The Nation. And, you know, I've talked about these experiences. And it's mostly because, you know, I'm a big proponent of government service. I recommend to anyone government service for at least some amount of time if you want to change the way things go and and happen uh, in this country. And so that was also the opportunity for me to publicly speak about who I consider the heroes of the government, who are also carrying on uh, you know, the civil service and foreign service of the State Department, are unsung heroes. They are working mostly, and when I say mostly, almost entirely, except for this one little layer towards the common good, towards the good of U.S. citizens. There is one layer inside of government where I question, who who are they serving? Why are they doing these actions? Did you get any answers to that? <laughs> I mean, they are serving someone or or themselves at least. Well, I think their actions speak louder than anything that they would say. But you know, who who benefits? Who benefits from a rolling back of the Endangered Species Act? Right during the campaign, were there Crowds of people clamoring to have the Endangered Species Act, one of the most popular domestic programs in the history of this country. Who was clamoring for that? Uh, only a, a, a certain you know, stakeholder would be wanting some rollback of that. And, you know, it's it's largely corporate interests. You know, I worked in national security in the U.S. government, and I saw what I would consider over-the-line acceptance of economic security in the guise of uh, protecting corporations.
1: Economic security of the people speaking? You mean someone getting financial?
0: No, I mean, so if you read the national security strategy of the Trump administration, they make a a big point of, of pushing economic security, which is really important if you're talking about Livelihoods of U.S. citizens. But if that statement is really meant to push the uh, health of corporations and corporate interests over the interests of U.S. citizens, I think you've no longer, you're, you've left the world of national security. You're no longer protecting U.S. citizens, which, you know, at the end of the day, that's what national security is most about, the protection of U.S. citizens here. Uh, and abroad.
1: So going back to your your decision, you make your choice. Yeah, you're jumping off the deep end, or jumping into the deep end. And it could be that your life gets ruined. It could be maybe you anticipated short term problems, but it'll level off, and long term it'll work out better. Maybe yeah. you'll have maybe it's long term problems and it'll never get better. How did things work out? Yeah. Better than you expected? Worse than you expected? Longer? Shorter? Um, I would say in the middle. I I know
0: that there were, there were stories being shopped to the press from people inside of the government, uh, which were really, I think, you know, they were going to be smear campaign kind of. uh, And there were nipples I've heard since, but those didn't really transpire. I, you know, I was worried about if my daughter were to someday Google my name, would it come out as, you know, This radical environmentalist pushing his own agenda within the government, that kind of narrative. But that didn't take. And, uh, you know, I've heard some from some reporters since they're like, you know, as soon as, you know, you read, as soon as we read that testimony and heard you talk in public, we knew that that uh, narrative wasn't correct. And then, um, you know, there's just so much stuff going on in Washington, DC. I was, I quickly went to, I quickly went from a place where I was afraid to answer my phone and I was being tweeted at and discussed, at least in my own small world of DC, to, you know, a couple of months later, uh, it was pretty lonely. It's pretty isolated. Uh, because people had moved on to the next outrage. And that's a healthy thing, but at first it's a it's a weird thing to happen. And, you know, I'd be invited to give talks and you know, I really wanted to talk about the environment and ecology and nat- national security, and I didn't really want to have I didn't have a lot of interest in bashing the Trump administration. I think their actions speak for themselves, and so that was a little bit of a difficult transition and then you know i I kind of got into a groove of you know i open i started my own consulting company, and I've been very busy talking about uh, some of these issues and helping people think through the security and societal dimensions of ecological change. And that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, That's what I was doing in government. You know, I don't have access to the classified information anymore, but it didn't really factor that much after a while into the stories.
1: What are some things you learned from it or things you wish you'd known ahead ahead of time or what maybe that many people face, what they think is the right thing and what's the easier thing and to face, to make those choices? Um,
0: you know, these difficult decisions can only be personal and they can't be transported to someone else's situation. I know a lot of people in government who are still there putting their heads down on their desk, trying not to uh, collapse because of this assault on, on government workers. And, you know, it would it might be easy to say, well, why don't you resign? But it's a, you know, it's a personal choice i mean just to be frank i was really really bothered by our family separation policy that happened uh, in you know in the first year year and a half of the administration and i kept working for another year thinking well i'm going to keep my head down do the kind of good work that i've been doing find some way to be productive and you know that's understandable uh, everyone can't leave but then you know when i was personally involved it became an issue that i couldn't I couldn't file away in my brain anymore and you know feel sick when i would walk into the building right and that's that's how i felt during the family separation policies i used to be proud of walking into the state department and seeing all those flags i would purposefully take the long way around the building to enter into the c street and uh, entrance to see all those flags and it made me proud to be working for the government. And, you know, after, you know, after a year a year and a half in the Trump administration, I didn't feel that anymore. And I, it really bothered me. How am I supporting? Because in the intelligence community, you're not just, you know, you're supporting the executive branch. You're actively helping them do their job. So that was really, even though I didn't have anything personally to do with family separation policy, you know, it's like, who are these people that I'm uh, that I'm working for? And so it's a, it's an incredibly difficult decision. You know, it, I wish sometimes I could have just walked out the next day, but I stewed on it for like two hard weeks. And but you know, getting out of government really helped clarify myself as well. You know how I felt uh, because you know you can play a good soldier for for a while, but when I left. I was surprised at how a weight had been lifted off my shoulder. You know, I had been working, you know, almost 10 years without a break. So I'm not sure I answered your question. I, I went off on a tangent there.
1: Not so much a question. I mean, really, it's to hear what goes on inside, because it was more acute for you than most people. But everyone, I believe that everyone who's who knows about the environmental situation today is facing a challenge of, should I keep doing what I've been doing? At what point right. do I set a line for myself? A lot of people are saying, well, it's easier for you. You had things for your hand was forced, but they have the same decision. Right. My picture, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you you had it was a challenge. So you had a two-week of very difficult challenge. Then you acted. Then you your phone was buzzing off the hook, then silence, then recovery. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing that today looking back, you unqualified made the right decision. It was hard but you would do it again in a second any regrets at all or right because partly i think i'm facing decisions like this and i'm trying to think maybe i should just dive into some of these challenging things so regrets
0: i have no regrets leaving nor do i have regrets leaving in the manner that i did but i miss the people i worked with i miss the decision-making process. I miss a lot of things. I, Like I said, I really loved that job. So that chapter is over, you know, at least temporarily. I'm not certain I would go back to government service. I'd have to think about it. But, you know, we're in serious trouble as a planet. It's all hands on deck. And even if I don't work in a governmental position or in the intelligence community, there are other ways to move the ball forward, whether by collective personal actions or by helping future leaders think about these problems. And so, you know, I have the benefit of having spent 10 years thinking of the connections between two fields that a lot of people think are separate, right? Environmental change and national security. I see them as, as one. And if I can help educate future leaders of these connections, then that's at least something that I, I can contribute as well. So this is one of the reasons why I jumped at the chance to uh, teach climate change at, at Georgetown, which I do uh, as an adjunct in the School of Foreign Service. So this is these are future diplomats and future, not just in the United States, but future leaders worldwide. And I think it's important to find other ways to move the ball forward on climate change and ecological disruption and helping minimize and reduce and prevent vulnerability from locked in changes, locked in warming from climate change. I, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, I'm concerned about is a lot of attention, which is deserved on how do we get our emissions down? And that's, There's nothing more important than that, but also important is how do we help people reduce their vulnerability and their exposure to climate forces and, you know, ecological forces. Uh, That is something I, I find quite missing from the discussion, especially in the security context, right? If you, you know, there's a lot of press reports that talk about, oh, how the national security community uh, accepts the reality of climate change. And that's largely true. It's not completely true, but okay. If that's true, then what are you going to do to protect the security of the United States and its citizens in the next 20 to 30 years when emissions and and warming is largely locked in? What's the What are we going to do? Whichever president comes in, not just in 2021, but afterwards, what are you going to do to protect the citizens of the united states and and other countries that we care about and i take it that
1: you're working on answering that question i mean that is what you're doing as you i'm trying yeah i'm trying to get people to act on it not just to find answers but i think the the distance between having a solution and acting on the solution and That's right. leading others to join in right that that to me is the big gulf actually
0: well and you know i i think and just be frank this is slow process for me because I spent, you know, I've been a scientist, you know, ever since I was a teenager and I was an analyst in the intelligence community, right? Analysts do not think about solutions. Typically they had, they characterize the problem. And so I'm very good at characterizing the problem. And I'm very good at helping people understand climate change and its associated effects. I think one spin that I that I take that a lot of people don't is I really bring in the non-meteorological pieces as well. Right. You know, you hear about sea level rise and hear about storms and hear about floods and droughts. But I think just as important and some and in some places more important is the reverberations that will hit people through ecological uh, systems.
1: So I'm going to shift in a new in a different direction what I talked about before we started recording. Yeah. Not just coming up with solutions but action. Yeah. Okay, so the environment seems very important to you. Right. What do you think about when you think what motivates you? What's what's driving this? I mean, of course you want to save the world, you want I'm mean, speaking way too loosely, but what's inside? What what started it?
0: You know, it has a I think it's rooted in justice and in inequality. And I see the ecological and environmental stresses, if they're not addressed, really increasing, you know, the discomfort and misery of people worldwide.
1: You're speaking kind of abstractly. Are there, yeah. do, you, do you have images that come to mind or stories or?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, do I have stories? You know, I have, through my job, a lot of people can read the paper. And look away when they're uncomfortable, uh, they can look at the refugee crisis coming up you know from the northern triangle of uh, Central America and the human movement patterns there, and they're able if it 's too uncomfortable, they can turn off the news or they can turn to the next page or scroll up. My job in the intelligence community was to not in some of those. Issues and some of those effects on human beings really got under my skin and really affected me. And you know, and certainly the the way that some governments treat these people who are really affected as non persons and really, you know, really affected me. And I think it's based on my upbringing. And you know, I'm not not from the coastal, I'm not part of the coastal elites. I'm from, I'm from the heart of the country where uh, people live and die on the land and how the land prospers. And both my grandparents were farmers. And, you know, I grew up on farms and I have a deep attachment to animals. And, you know, seeing, seeing people affected and people uh, stressed by things that are largely in, con- that we're in control of,
1: is pretty uh, motivating. Is it too uncomfortable to ask what you're talking about, about the Northern Triangle, what governments would do? Well, I mean,
0: it's not, a, I mean, it's not uncomfortable. You know, in 2014 and 15 and 16 and 19 uh, and some years in between, there was a shift in the manner of migration uh, from Central America into Mexico and the southern border of the United States. And it started to, the demographics of these migrants changed. It was no longer people out of work, or it was more and more families and unaccompanied children. And I had a soft spot for children even before I had one of my own. Really, their well-being and and threats to well-being really gets under my skin. And to to Read about the hazards and the unpleasantness that
1: these families endured. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get a feeling for this unpleasantness. That's what, I, if it's, yeah. it's so uncomfortable to say, because I feel like that's the crux of it. Yeah, you're speaking very mm-hmm. uh, abstractly. Oh, they're under right. stress. I'm like, are they being tortured? Are they starving to death? Are they being shot? Are they or are they homeless? I and yeah. are you seeing? images of this or reports of this? Are you directly relating this to our behavior? Are you thinking like this is us or is it just something separate?
0: Yeah. So no, it has a lot to do with uh, the United States. And so, you know, forgive me for being too vague. It comes from 10 years of training in the intelligence community, trying not to disclose classified information, but nothing we're talking about here is classified. So it's just a Something that is embedded in me, but uh, let 's just drill down a little bit uh, we 're talking about starvation we 're talking about violence towards women and children we 're talking about rape we 're talking about targeted violence towards migrants along the path before they even get to the United States you know to to escape some pretty terrible conditions inside of their home countries, and so a lot of this has to do with uh, the drug war and the demand of drugs from the United States, at least partially fuels uh, the violence in Central America, it has a lot to do with uh, people going back to El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras from the United States with a uh, you know, with an increased ambition uh, to effect changes in those countries. And that's usually in a violent way. You know, there, there are gangs that are uh, well described. I, I wouldn't characterize all of these folks of being part of those MS13 and that type of that type of stuff. But you know, basically, the hardships that these families and these children were escaping, uh, which were largely amplified by environmental change, right? The collapse of of
1: agriculture. The I was wondering how it connected with the environment. So it's it's very acute widespread, horrifying, directly related to our behavior.
0: Yeah, I, I would probably hedge on directly because all of this is always more complicated than, you know, than drawing a straight line. But you know, certainly the the freak weather that was plaguing Central America for five years, there's been a pretty horrible drought in Central America. You know, it's not because of the actions of you or me, but it is long term climate. In emissions policies that probably affected you know this freak weather, you know I think there was an absence of tropical uh, hurricanes in the Atlantic for two or three years because they were going north you know towards the United States that helped contribute to this to this drought and you know there's a coffee leaf rust problem that decimated you know coffee livelihoods, which is a lot of small farmers in you know, in those three countries. And so, you know, they're, they're facing poverty, they're facing food insecurity, and they're facing violence.
1: I wanted to get this out because I believe that as much as you were saying there are these stresses, I, I suspect that in, inside you, you're thinking about these details and probably a, a lower level of detail than has come out so far. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm getting this out is that if these are the things that are motivating you.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you and this is at your option, to think of something you can do, you yourself personally, to act on those feelings. Now, most people, when I say this, they think of what's the most important thing they could do or the biggest thing they could do or something that the New York Times says that they should do. But what I'm, it's, it's not about the rest of the world. Big or small is not, not the question. It's to act on what motivates you. And big or small doesn't matter. Only restrictions are that it can't be something that you're already doing, something new, something that you do yourself. So because I have all these leaders that they're always like, oh, I'll get my team to do that. No, this is something for you to do yourself. And it has to have some measurable, you don't have to measure it, but in principle, measurable effect, not just raising awareness or education, which by all means do those, but don't stop there.
0: Well, I so, wonder if you have examples, because I, I understand the words that you're saying, but I,
1: I need uh, an entry point. Well, is there anything that you, when you do it, you think to yourself, oh, this, this affects that. Maybe I can do it differently. Maybe there's something I've been changing. I've been meaning to change to do differently, or I know that this is having some effect, and maybe I could reduce or augment depending on the on the the thing. And it can be temporary, by the way. It's not. I'm not saying like change your life forever, because I'll ask you to come back and share what the experience was like.
0: Well, you know, I mean, back to our original, not original, a point we hit earlier about the deep interconnectedness of the planet we live in. Uh, live on, and the ecosystems on top of it. You know, I see practically everything as uh, as consequential, in to some degree, you know, one thing that has bothered me for a long time is how much food waste there is, and this is a uh, this is a critical element of reducing the footprint on the planet.
1: Finally, making the news a lot, yeah, yeah, but you know, this is something we
0: would say in the intelligence community. It's like this, you know, no one gets kudos from the public if their great plan is to reduce food waste. Instead, they want to build a giant piece of infrastructure or bridge or whatever. But, you know, those efficiencies really matter when they're scaled, scaled up and, and operated under collective action. Uh, frankly, I'm not as great on food waste as, uh, as i like to be, as others. You know, I, I think it's because I was a bachelor for you know, 20 years and I was used to buying you know, uh, from a uh, you know, farmer's market on my way home, you know, whatever I was going to, to uh, consume or prepare that night. There's a lot of food waste happening. I'm reading internal
1: motivation here that you'd like to act on. Yeah. Let's make it a smart goal. What's something specific, uh, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound?
0: Well, so here's the funny thing. We, uh, I bought my wife this really amazing composting thing in the back, uh, in our backyard, and it sits unused. Uh, and so that is something. It's hard to, I mean, that's up in D.C. i meant down in the mountains of North Carolina temporarily. But that is a, that is a goal that even if you hadn't asked me, I, I have been meaning to put for myself.
1: So it'd be getting that thing going, starting using it. Yeah. So that sounds like it fits. And donate it and donate the compost so that it's, I mean, we have a tiny little backyard in DC. Uh, Okay. So say that, I don't know when you're going to get back to DC, but how long do you think after you get back to DC, it would take to use it so you could come back? And if I asked you, how did it go? You could give me a meaningful answer. Probably six months. Good for, can we schedule a conversation six months to hear how it's gone? Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's what I was talking about before. And how does it feel about this, about doing something?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think it feels great. I mean, it's funny because, you know, at the State Department, I traveled so much on airplanes. Just, I mean, just so much. And after my daughter was born, I was like, I don't want to go anymore. I'm, I'm done. And it's also, um, you know, there's a significant climate footprint from flying. And so I've already made that adjustment and I haven't been out of the country. This is the longest I've not been out of the country for my entire life, probably. Or at least my uh, uh, post-puberty life. You know, I've been a vegetarian my entire life. But, you know, there's always room. There's always things that we can do, right? There's always Especially the re- reduction of waste and efficiencies, I, and it matters. I mean, it, and it it's it's good, not just good. It's also good modeling for my little young one as well.
1: I predict that what you're feeling now is a small part of how you feel after doing it, hmm. and that I bet it may change your practice in what you do. But I'm not sure. But that's what I, that's why I have people yeah. on the second time because I want. I think most people at home are, are thinking yeah, what I do, it doesn't really matter. I think that they're thinking of what's, most people think what's the scale of, is it going to make a big enough difference? Right. Now, I'm not going to argue that a lot of people doing small things will add up, but people, big or small, if it's meaningful, then there's a better chance that they'll do more. Mm -hmm. And big or small at the start, if you keep doing things, it'll get bigger and bigger. You'll learn how to lead others. It's very difficult to influence others when you yourself are not doing it. Right. Even if they don't copy you, you lose credibility if you're saying, do this while I don't. That's right. I think that's exactly the right vector into
0: uh, at least this physicist mentality, right? So I look forward to hearing how it goes. Who wants to serve his country, yeah, and society,
1: yep. So I'll send you my, the link to my TEDx talks because if you haven't seen them, then this is like the building block. This is yeah. to me one-on-one influencing one person. Mm-hmm. The next stage is how to influence organizations to, to, for an organization to go through the same process mm-hmm. or dare I say a whole government to go through a process like that. yeah, Actually practicing things, starting from internal motivation rather than obligation or burden or sacrifice.
0: I think that's right. Right. I mean, and that's how it's sustainable. Because all of those other things, when you do things for other people, they d- they're not sustainable. You, you stop. You quit. Sustainable and enjoyable. And enjoyable. That's right. Right. I mean, I, I think we equate a lot of unpleasantness with these changes that, we may be faced with making that's not written in stone. I argue with my students that you know the future is is human made, and how it how it transpires and how just it is uh, is in our completely in our hands. Right? They're it's they're not requirements from some other entity. This is we are deciding the future.
1: Yeah, I find that even just even before you've acted, just making the shift. Mm-hmm. As I read it, the shift is is what can I do that I want to do? The whole tone of the conversation changes from what we were talking about before was important about what what policy is, what it should be, what what the problems are to action to looking forward mm-hmm. to how you feel now. The emotional tenor, I think is is uh when when people act on what they care about, mm-hmm. that resolve happens, yeah. It's a really different conversation.
0: Resolve is a good word, by the way. That's a that's a fantastic word. Cool. That should be coupled with sustainability. Resolve, because resolve, you know, it, it it really means that you're acting, you're your own rudder, right? You're your own engine. You know, I think that's that's an effective prescription for at least individual action.
1: Well, I'm going to wrap up here. Okay, we've been talking for a while, and we'll, we'll we'll start again here next time. Okay, anything to close on? Anything I didn't think to ask to bring up, or anything to say to the listeners?
0: It's funny, you know. I mentioned in the you know earlier that I really don't like to talk. I don't like to go personal. I'm very comfortable being analytic and very comfortable talking about problems and solutions. But when we go inward. I stammer and I struggle. And so, uh, but it's good and it's necessary. And so thank you for posing those questions. And I I hope that I was able to articulate well enough what was in my brain.
1: Well, you said thank you. So I'll I'll say you're welcome. But really, from me to you, you, you're the one who opened up. So uh, Rob Schoonover, thank you very much. Thank you. As Rod and I are both former physicists, it felt almost heartwarming to hear a systems approach. Few people get systems perspectives. Many who do get them, they haven't practiced them. So I, I really love getting to talk to someone with experience and fluency in them. On the downside to systems perspective, we see how imminent collapse may be and how futile these non-solutions are for treating only elements of a system, just working on one part of it. On the upside, we see how simple and effective systemic solutions can be and fun, as we talked about. Changing beliefs, which comes through acting, not just analyzing, is a big part of systemic change. Likewise, the lack of changing belief, which not acting makes inevitable, can often prevent systemic change. That is, it forces us to maintain old systems. I'm curious to hear how his change affects him and propagates to his work and life. It'll be difficult to wait almost six months, but I bet that just the small change in his home can make a difference that can affect, well, he's not in government now, but I would predict that if he were in government, or this sort of thing propagates to people he used to work with, it could change policy at a much bigger level than you'd expect, thinking it's only just one person acting. It's not just one person acting. It's people learning and growing and changing and developing skills, then acting. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodek.com/donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com/donate.